It's good to see all of you this morning. I'll invite you to be opening with me in your Bibles to John chapter 5. If you were with us last week, as you're turning there and you're seeing uh, all or, or much of that chapter in front of you, you may remember that what we began last week was to look at this chapter as a whole to understand the progression that, that happens as we move from the first to the last of it. Uh, we, we took time last week to look in particular at the miraculous healing that happens at the beginning of this chapter. But we saw that that was, in essence, part one of three parts. There are three steps to this chapter that Jesus very intentionally moves us through and moves those who were there with him through. Uh, the, the healing episode was the first step of these three. Uh, what we saw is that the progression goes like this. In this chapter, Jesus heals a man. That's number one. That produces a Sabbath controversy because he did it on the Sabbath. That's number two. And Jesus responds to that controversy, you could say, in a way that sparks the controversy, which is that he excuses his working on that day by pointing to a particular likeness, some sort of likeness that he shares with the Father. That's part three. And so most of this chapter is taken up with that third piece. He brings them to, forces them to a confrontation with something of who he is in his relationship to the Father. Last week we saw the first piece of that. This morning what we're going to do is focus on the second piece. We're going to focus on the Sabbath controversy that arises here. And you'll notice as we go through, we're not going to do this in a way that tries to exhaust the whole topic of Sabbath. In fact, there will be much more we'll, we'll get into when we get to John chapter 7. This morning in particular, what we're going to look at is how Jesus answers their objections in this passage in John chapter 5 concerning the Sabbath. And it's helpful if you were here last week to hear the, uh, the way that that second part leads to, by intention, the third part, because I think it helps us to understand why. In terms of the dispute over the Sabbath itself here in this chapter, it helps us to understand why there's not as much description here, or even really uh, as much focus on the actual issue of Sabbath observance. It comes and goes relatively quickly in this chapter. Whereas other places and other uh, controversies in the Gospels focus on it a bit more. They give us quite a bit more content to go off of if we're trying to understand what was the objection, what was the concern about Sabbath here. So what we'll do this morning in particular is we're going to ask some general questions about the Sabbath. We're going to look into the rest of the Gospels as well and see where those other Sabbath controversies arose. But we're going to do it in order to notice how unique Jesus' response is here. We're going to see that he does something here in answering their objections about his work on the Sabbath that is unique in all of the Gospels. Let's begin by reading the text. Our focus in the passage will be uh, on essentially verses 7 to 17, or 7 to 18, but I'd like us to read all of the first 18 verses uh, here as we begin. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Verse 
said the first 18 verses, excuse me, we'll begin at verse 8. And this will be the conclusion of his, of his miracle and lead us into the text for this morning. So verses 8 to 18. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This is the word of the Lord. Be Please be seated. The way that we'll approach Sabbath in this chapter this morning is essentially twofold. The first thing we're going to do is look out into all of the Gospels as a whole corpus and take some time in a quick way to survey all of the controversies that are given to us in the Gospels surrounding Jesus and the Sabbath. So we'll do that in a general way first. And as I said, we'll do that in service to this passage in order to really especially see something unique about what happens here in John 5. The second thing we'll do then is we'll move back into this chapter and we'll limit our focus especially to verses 9 to 17. Because what we want to do is we want to work to hear exactly what Jesus intended us to hear in this response and to learn what he intended us to learn from his reply. But let's go out first from this and look at the other instances of Sabbath confrontation that the Gospels give to us. What I've tried to do for the sake of time, you can imagine how long this would take us if we worked to these passages one at a time. I have compiled them onto a handout that you have in your bulletin. It's the kind of handout everybody loves that has far too many words on it. But we're, I don't have that there for us to read through together. Well, I wanted you to be able to see, and even after this morning, to be able to see the wording of Jesus' replies in each of these cases. So that's what you have in the middle column there in that handout, is the actual text of how he responds when people, especially the Jewish leaders, object to some things that he is doing uh, in, in, uh, in, on Sabbath occasions, on the seventh day. It's the right-hand column in particular. That's the one to zero in on. And what we need to notice is that essentially there are two points, only two points, that Jesus makes in these controversies when he creates them about the Sabbath. Two points. Our passage this morning is the sole exception to that. He makes a different point here in John 5, and it's the only time that he doesn't make one of those two. 
Uh, John 7, which we'll get to here in a number of weeks, makes both of these two points in the very same passage. So that will be helpful, and it'll give us a different uh, angle to look more deeply into this when we get to chapter 7. But the first of those two points that Jesus brings up in response to their objections about his working on the Sabbath, you can see it in the top two examples on that handout. The point he makes in those places is to say that there have always been what we could call divinely accepted exceptions to the prohibition against the doing of work on the Sabbath. There have always been holy exceptions. Going back into the Old Testament, there have been those cases. In those first two listed, the point made is that the temple servants, in their doing work on the Sabbath, in that case, and David, in another, were allowed to do what would otherwise have been work. And what he's saying by bringing up those examples, which were divinely accepted exceptions, holy exceptions, his point in bringing those up is to say it was permitted in these cases, these exceptions, and something greater than the temple is here. Something greater than David is here. The true temple is here. The true David, David's true son, is here. And so those exceptions being permitted says something, forces you to consider something about who I am and why these things would be acceptable for me to do in working on the Sabbath. So that's the first two instances he gives there. There there have always been holy exceptions to this work prohibition. The second reason he gives, you see on the handout, this is what he brings up far more often in replying to the Pharisees or the Jewish leaders, is, is a response about the nature of the Sabbath itself. He makes the point over and over again that they have misunderstood God's intention in giving Sabbath uh, to his people and in commanding rest. The point that he makes in those other passages is that the Sabbath was given by God as a blessing to man. It regulated work and restricted this type of work to six of the seven days. It did not do that to burden them. It did that to give them relief from burden. This is the heart of God in giving Sabbath rest to his people. You see it in the Mosaic Covenant itself in the fourth commandment, but it's even the sort of pattern that God has baked into creation itself. There are these cyclical givings of rest to his creation. You even even think of the, um, you could say, the sabbatical principle that's seen in the seasons of the year, for example. For the Israelites, the the very sign of their Mosaic covenant that God entered into with them was the Sabbath ordinance. Exodus chapter 31 belabors the point that the Sabbath command is given to them in that that covenantal location as a sign of this covenant, which shows so much about the heart of God for his people. But in these instances, what do we find having happened? The Jewish leaders by this time have managed to turn this Sabbath rest into a holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, a holy, unreasonable burden for his people. And they've come to think of it in these terms such that they are actually angry when Jesus heals someone on that Sabbath. They're angry when he restores a person to full health. And what Jesus says to them in these situations when he's giving this second response As he says, your anger reflects 
the fact that you have no idea as to what God intended with this Sabbath rest. God is a God who loves to bless by bringing rest to his people. And in fact, we know the end of the story, don't we? We know that these pictures are preparing us for exactly that, that God in Christ will at last bring rest to his people, a rest that they can never achieve, that they can never come into on their own. They are desperately in need of this rest from their labors. And Jesus gives that rest. This is the picture that he's preparing us for. God loves to bless his people by bringing rest to them. But as we've seen even recently in this this study of John, they can only truly rest when they choose to trust him for their provision. And this is so much in what we will see in just a moment here. We'll go into the Old Testament here in just a couple of minutes. And what we'll see is that what God is doing when giving them Sabbath commands is he's forcing them to choose to trust him with their provision. There are things that must be done to live, and he's saying, you must do those in six days and not the seventh. Never mind the fact that you can earn more money by working seven days or create more food by working seven days. I'm telling you to do that in six days and not seven and to trust me that I will provide for you. The one who does not trust God in that is the one who believes he must work every bit that he can to scrape out his existence and his provision. And God says, no, you will trust me. You will only be able to rest if you trust me. And maybe you can see already that in no way does what we've seen or that, or that is given on this handout, um, doing everything we, we would do to understand the Sabbath controversies. Again, that's not our goal this morning. So I, I want you to notice in particular what is bolded there in the, in the insert And that is that what we find in John 5 here, as we're about to move into John 5 in particular, is a a particular response that, that Jesus gives to these objections. And it's not either of those two. He's going to say something different in responding to their anger about his working on the Sabbath. Now, with that in mind, let's look at John chapter 5 in particular. And ironically, I say that. As we begin to look at John 5 in particular, we're going to go into the Old Testament. We're going to leave again here. But I'll ask you to go along with me in these. I want us to look at, um, at, at three passages in the Old Testament. And this is really going to be in order for us to understand verse 10 better. Let me read verse 10 again here in John 5. It says this, So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. We need to understand how it is that they've gotten there. And so there will be three verses we'll look at in this chapter in particular. Verse 10 here, verse 17, and verse 18. But to understand verse 10, let's take a quick walk through a few places in the Old Testament. Because we need to understand not only how the Jewish leaders at this time have come to enforce Sabbath law, but also how their their entire observance of the Sabbath progressed to the place that it is here where they would say this to this man. And so to do this, we'll look at three passages. I'd invite you to look at these with me because each of them is fairly lengthy. The first is uh, Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 8. Look back at Exodus 20 and verse 8. And you'll see when you get there, this is the nexus of it all, isn't it? This is the giving of the Ten Commandments, 
specifically the giving of the fourth commandment. And I would read this to us so that we can start to be reminded of the kind of work, the kinds of restrictions that God is imposing on his people here when he gives them the fourth commandment. Beginning in verse 8, this is what we read. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And stop there. Now if, if it's any indication, if the number of trees killed in the service of Sabbath debates, even among evangelicals today, is any indication, we could go till summer in these verses in a deep dive on this question. And again, that is not our intention this morning. What we need to see here this morning, as we're looking at Exodus 20, is that when it comes to a work prohibition, what we see is fairly straightforward. God is limiting the labor of his people that entails their providing for themselves. There is a sort of thing we all understand. There is a regular kind of providing for oneself and for one's own that everyone is engaged in in order to survive. And he limits that work to six days. He does get a bit specific in verse 10 in that he clarifies that those who are well off enough to have servants, to employ servants, they cannot get around this by resting themselves while having their servants continue on in gathering provisions for them. And again, it gets at his point, right? The point is not simply the ceasing. The point is the choice to trust God with our provision. And so our servants cannot do this either. We can't even set our livestock to doing some kind of work while we rest. The whole point is choose to trust me. Enjoy the rest that I'm giving you as an act of trust. Now, we can continue here, and, and as, we, as we go to these other two places, what I hope you notice is we're getting nearer and nearer to the objection that the Pharisees made to this man in John chapter 5. Turn now to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 13. Ezra, Nehemiah. Esther. Nehemiah 13, 15 is where we'll start. This is a little bit longer than the other. I'm going to read verses 15 down to verse 22. Nehemiah is recounting what happened. This is the, some of them have begun to return here and to, and to, uh, to restore uh, the land and the city. And when he gets there, what he finds is all kinds of Sabbath violations. And this is what we read about. Nehemiah 13, 15. In those days, I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. 
Tyrians also, who lived in the city, brought in fish of all kind and, and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark in the gates of Jerusalem, uh, at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Now notice here too, and it's even more direct and explicit than what we saw in Exodus. Notice the kind of work that is in question here. We find the same sort of work that we described before. Here we find working the land, things like treading wine presses, loading grain and figs and other produce. We see that in verse 15. Opening up the marketplace to sell those things in verse 16. And in verse 17, Nehemiah calls that profaning the Sabbath. And he puts a stop to that kind of commercial activity. That's what verses 19 and following is. So you see the scope there. Notice also the language of things like the bearing of loads. These are the kinds of loads that are in question. Throwing these things onto the back of our, of our uh, animals of burden and bringing them in, these sorts of things. One last place for us to go. Uh, go to Jeremiah 17. And we'll start reading in verse 19. And what you'll notice here, I think, is that by the time we're done with this passage, we will have gotten even closer to the violation that this man is being accused of in John 5. Jeremiah 17, 19. I'll read down to verse 25. Thus said the Lord to me, Go and stand in the people's gate, by which the kings of Judah enter, and by which they go out, and in all the gates of Jerusalem, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, you kings of Judah, and all Judah, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, who enter by these gates. Thus says the Lord, Take care for the sake of your lives, and do not bear a burden on the Sabbath day, or bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem. And do not carry a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath, or do any work. But keep the Sabbath day holy as I commanded your fathers. Yet they did not listen or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck, that they might not hear and receive instruction. But if you listen to me, declares the Lord, and bring in no burden by the gates of this city on the Sabbath day, but keep the Sabbath day holy and do no work on it, then there shall enter by the gates of this city kings and princes who sit on the throne of David, 
riding in chariots and on horses, they and their officials, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and this city shall be inhabited forever. Now, do you hear it in there? Which of these verses is it that gets us even closer to the John 5 man's violation? Do you see that it's verses 21 and 22? Thus says the Lord, Take care for the sake of your lives, and do not bear a burden on the Sabbath day, or bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem, and do not carry a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath, or do any work, but keep the Sabbath day holy. I mean, there it is. Don't bear a burden out of your house. I hope that in reading these passages, though, that the context has allowed us to see more clearly what exactly is the concern that God is conveying through these prophets. There is a concern of a type of burden bearing, and we've seen the language of bearing a burden and bearing a load through these texts. You have in verse 21 there a burden that you would bring in by the gates. This is commercial activity. This is the providing for oneself and one's family. In verse 22, you have a burden being carried out of your home, which entails work done at home. Domestic work for the same purpose. And verse 24 gives what seems to me to be a summary statement here, and it words it in a way that's very consistent with what we already saw in Exodus and Nehemiah. When it says, but if you listen to me, declares the Lord, and bring in no burden by the gates of this city on the Sabbath day, but keep the Sabbath day holy and do no work on it. His desire is that they would trust him for their, with their lives and that they would thus not do work on the Sabbath. Now, you think of how their history progresses after this, what all they have been through. You think about the fact that God, through the prophets, even as we've read, often connect the Jews' exile and all the misery of their exile and their punishment to the fact that they profaned the Sabbath. In light of all of those sorts of statements, it is very understandable, isn't it, that the Jewish teachers, as time went on, came to argue, teach, write extensively about Sabbath regulation and to develop their national regulations around Sabbath command a great deal. And that's exactly what they did. We have record of what's called the, the Mishnah, the Jewish Mishnah, which contains things like records of Jewish law interpretation. Uh, and in the Mishnah, they list what they call the 40 save one in this context, 39 classes of work, of activity, that were prohibited on the Sabbath. Here's what it says. You'll notice maybe a progression in these. Uh, the main classes of work, it says, are 40 save one. Sowing, plowing, reaping, binding sheaves, threshing, winnowing. This is all making a lot of sense. Cleansing crops, grinding, sifting, kneading, baking, shearing wool, washing or beating or dyeing it, spinning, weaving, making two loops, weaving two threads, separating two threads, tying a knot, loosening a knot, sewing two stitches, tearing in order to sew two stitches, hunting a gazelle, slaughtering or flaying or salting it or curing its skin, scraping it or cutting it up, writing two letters, Erasing in order to write two letters, 
hammering, excuse me, building, pulling down, putting out a fire, lighting a fire, striking with a hammer, and taking something from one domain to another. These are the main classes of work, 40 save 1. And that's giving the classes of work. They go on then under each of those to get even more specific, right, about what you can, what constitutes that. And they came to such conclusions as um, moving something inside your home with a bodily motion may be okay, provided, for example, that you don't lift it up over your head. If you lift it over your head, you've done work, and you're guilty of breaking the Sabbath. They continue to parse these things out. Some of it, it's just very understandable, isn't it? They, they as a people, have just undergone tremendous judgment from God for profaning the Sabbath, and they don't want that to happen again. Now, in that list that I read, did you hear the one that this man is accused of violating? It's the last one. He's taking something from one domain to another as he picks up his bed and carries it. So coming back now to our passage, if you've been going with me through these Old Testament passages, come back to John 5. In verse 10, we see that while this man is not violating the actual Old Testament law as it's written, he is violating rabbinic law. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. They say this, and they are correct according to rabbinic law. Now, let me just remind you what we're doing here, because we've taken that walk through those three passages. Uh, I've said there are three verses in particular for us to look at and understand here. Verse 10, verse 17, and verse 18. And we've only seen verse 10 so far. Look down now at verse 17. And actually, let me read verse 16 to bring us into 17. It says, And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. Notice we're told in verse 16 that the Jews were persecuting Jesus. They, they begin now an attack that they then continued. This began to characterize their opposition to him publicly. This became an ongoing reason for their antagonism, their criticism, their challenge of him. And what we're told here is that it is particularly due to their perceived, to the perceived offense of Sabbath regulation. This was why the Jews were persecuting him, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But when they begin to persecute him here for doing these things, Jesus does not slip away. He responds to them. It says he answers them. And notice what it says. Notice what he says. My father is working until now, and I am working. Now, we've seen what comes next. They're offended. They're scandalized by this response. But it's not just exactly what he says that is so scandalous. It's how he says it, or it's, it's the picture he is painting with this sentence. We've seen a number of instances already that prove that Jesus does not waste words, does he? He has the ability to give a single sentence that just utterly blows a thing up or utterly exposes a thing right there to be seen. He pierces with his words, and he does it with this one sentence as well. The actual words he gives are a part of it. He says, my father. 
And that all by itself is pushing the envelope for them. It would not have, tech have technically officially been a, uh, a, a, an instance of blasphemy according to their laws, but it is pushing the envelope. It's not the way that Jews referred to God. Now, they would say things like, things very close to this. Again, he, he's parsing here. They would say, our Father, which reflects God's relationship to them corporately, but does not emphasize in that wording, does not emphasize an individual, personal, familial relationship. We even have record of, of them very rarely, uh, and in the context of prayer, we have, we have record of Jews praying, my Father, but no record of such a prayer by itself. They will add things on, my Father in heaven. Things like that, that, again, are emphasizing other things. Emphasizing, in that case, the location of God. Maybe even the, um, the transcendence of God and, and his location compared to them. That's what it would be emphasizing. It's not emphasizing an individual familial relationship. So you have the actual words here, my father, that are immediately going to get attention and not in a, in a positive way. But it's more than that. He is, he is giving an idea here in this response. And it's the idea that we'll look at in much more depth next week. Uh, when, uh, the idea that, that John presents when he gives Jesus' words, too, in verses 19 and following. The idea that he begins to present to them here, that Jesus does, is that Jesus and God the Father are like an actual father-son pair. This does not resonate with us in our, in our culture nearly so much as it would with them. When you talk about the, the father working and the son working, to those that he's hearing, this makes perfect sense. What happens is the son goes along after his father and works every time his father works. He learns in this way. He's going to do what his father did. This is just the way that, that the community works. And how does he learn? He learns by watching his father and copying his father. He does exactly what his father does. Think of what it says that Jesus claims to them that that's the nature of his relationship with the father. Again, we, we, I'm going to intentionally not have us go into that so much this morning. But at this point, what we can do is consider what that says about the Sabbath here and how that adds to Jesus' claims concerning the Sabbath. It may surprise you to know that the Pharisees would not have objected to the first part of Jesus' statement in verse 17. When he says, my father is working until now, that would not have been a controversial statement. They had had, by this point, long historical discussions and rabbinic debates, basically about this question. Is God breaking the Sabbath on the seventh day? Do we need to say that he doesn't do any work at all? Clearly he works, or all of us would be dead. He must preserve, he must be active. Is he breaking the Sabbath? If not, how is he not? They wrestled with this a great deal. And they had long ago decided that God does indeed continue working on the seventh day, lest all things be destroyed every Sabbath. But here's what they had done with it. They had said, that's okay for God, because it fits within the way that, we, that our rabbinical interpretation plays out. For example, they took comfort in the notion that for God, the whole universe is his domain. 
So he can never bring something from his domain to another place because it's all his domain. Okay. Um, he, he, never, he never, think of the stature of God. He never lifts anything up over his head because he is so large. And so he isn't violating Sabbath law as he works in these ways. It's all in-house and it's all, with, I guess, within the midsection. I don't know. So God is not guilty of violating our laws. And what we need to see here this morning is that this is the place that Jesus chooses to poke at in his reply. It's how he defends his own working on the Sabbath. He claims, he asserts the truth that God's rest does not entail inactivity. And he claims to be continuing in the work that God is doing. He doesn't say here what that is. He simply says this, that whatever reason justifies God's work on the Sabbath, it justifies mine. God is doing what he is doing, and he is permitted to do that, and I am just following, I'm just going and working along with him. If it's okay for him to be working, it's okay for me to be working. And the way in which it's okay for him to be working, it's okay for me to be working. He defends his right to do the work he's doing on the Sabbath by asserting a unity and thus a unique kind of equality with the Father. We'll put more flesh on that here next week, but what we could put on it here is to recognize Jesus' assertion here that there is a work that the Father continues up to that day alongside of the rest that he entered into after creation. He created in six days and rested on the seventh. And yet there is an ongoing work that he is constantly engaged in. This is asserted here. And I'd suggest that there's a pattern that we can recognize. In in Genesis 2, God rested from creation. And having completed that creation, he proceeded to work to nurture what he created. This is what the Jews recognized as well. But what we're finding in Christ is that post-fall now, God is working still. He is currently now working, not in creation, but in redemption. All of human history is the story of God working to redeem his people. And that is the work that Jesus is engaging in, along with his Father. My Father is working until now, and I am working. So just as with creation, here God works toward redemption, which is fundamentally accomplished at the cross, isn't it? So that there, Jesus' declaration changes from my father is working and I am working to the words, it is finished. The work I've come to do, it is finished. And just like with creation then, the, uh, the human history that follows the completion of that work is characterized by Christ nurturing what he has accomplished in that work, just as God nurtured what he accomplished in creation, as Christ dispenses the benefits of his inheritance through the Holy Spirit that he gives. Now, the last thing here, we can't overlook how John words verse 18. Look down at verse 18. And you might notice, I'll just point out the the comparison here. You might compare 16 to 18. 16 said, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Boy, how much can change in just one verse. 17 happens, 
And then here's what we read in 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This description is really important because it opens up to us the Jewish leadership's frame of mind. In their mind, the boundary Jesus is pushing on constitutes nothing less than the destruction of the Sabbath itself. They were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath. When it says breaking the Sabbath there, it is not simply talking about violating the Sabbath commands. This is the only time in the New Testament that it's phrased this way. Other other passages, when they talk about violating the Sabbath's commands, they, they use the language of not keeping the Sabbath. But he uses here a verb of destruction. And in fact, if you look it up in in the Greek lexicon, this word, it highlights this particular verse and usage. And it it suggests a translation in the lexicon itself of abolishing. Not only was Jesus abolishing the Sabbath. See, this is how it seems to the Jewish leadership. And the lexicon adds this comment as well. In John, Jesus is accused not of breaking the Sabbath, but of doing away with it as an ordinance. This is what it seems to them as they're hearing his response. So powerful is this response that to them, they think, if this is right, then he is abolishing the entire thing that God has given here. To be sure, the religious leaders don't correctly understand all of this situation, do they, as it truly is. But in this concern of theirs, they are tapping into something that the New Testament And indeed, Christ himself is going to speak to very significantly. He will need to say in the Sermon on the Mount, for example, I did not come to abolish, same word, I did not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. He is manifesting in his behavior and his teaching what we've already seen him manifest several times up to chapter 5 here. He's manifesting that with his coming, Things they are a-changing. And we shouldn't be surprised. He just told the Samaritan woman the same thing, didn't he? The hour is coming and is here when, for example, the temple in Jerusalem, the one that God commanded you to build and blessed and filled with his presence, the temple in Jerusalem will no longer be a place to go to offer true worship. Things they are a-changing. Massive things. In terms of John 5, these things are only whispered. They are very quickly mentioned because then it's on to the main controversy that Jesus is setting up, the one that we'll get into next week. But in light of that larger claim that Jesus is making about himself, I would have us end our time this morning by simply noticing the significance of Jesus' claimed relationship to the Father. I mentioned it already, the comparison between verses 16 and 18. I think we can see this clearly when we compare those. Let me read them again. This was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. His corrections regarding Sabbath, brought persecution from them. 
But his claim is concerning a father-son relationship to the father brought murder plots. That's a distinction that we ought to notice, and it's a distinction that ought to be relevant to us in terms of how we think about our faith, about the God that we profess to believe in and to follow. It, it is not a distinction we can do justice to if we don't use it to consider the place that Trinitarianism holds in our worship of God. Would this reaction that Jesus is working to create suggest that it is big or small what we are claiming relating to Jesus' relationship to his Father? We could say these kinds of things. Friends, we are not Christ followers if we live a life that proclaims a general God who does good and wants us to do good, the end. We are Christ followers when our lives begin from the acknowledgement of the God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We declare that in God is unity and diversity, that there are three persons and yet one God. We declare these things. The question that is most often challenging in this, if you're like me, is the question, how... What's the difference between asserting that and living it out? How, can, how am I to live this other than simply by saying it? How is it lived out? And one answer to that for us in this context could be maybe 2022 is your year because it seems that we'll be going through in the adult Sunday school hour a study on the Trinity later this year. So you have that to look forward to. And I trust that you sense how important these things are and it would create a hunger to use that time that you're given uh, to benefit and to grow in that. Uh, but I would give two answers to this question, though, of how is this to be lived out. We could go in other directions, but I think these are helpful for us. I, I pray that the Lord will use this to encourage and bless you this week. Two answers. Number one, you live this out by faithfully living out... Um, well, we could say it this way. You, you live this out by declaring Jesus God and by regarding him as God. Most simply, what that means is trust him and do what he tells you. He is our God. If he is our God, and I believe that, I will trust him and I will do what he tells me to do. The things that Jesus Christ tells you to do are not optional, are they? He is God. Second is very related to that. You, you faithfully live out the reality of Trinity by declaring the Holy Spirit God and by regarding him as God. And most simply, that means depend upon him as and be a faithful steward of the gifts that he has administered to you. He is God, as he is at work in our lives, equipping us for the good of the saints, calling us to particular manifestations of love and service of others. If he is God, then it must matter a great deal to me what the Bible tells me about his work in my life. 
I should have a hunger to faithfully steward the gifts that he has given to me. As we do these things as acts of obedience to God, we are living out a belief in the Trinity. Our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has done great things, hasn't he? And he is doing great things in and through his people as the Holy Spirit applies to us the redemption that Christ has accomplished. So believer, brothers, sisters, be excited about this day that the Lord has made. Because your God is great, and he does great things, and he has chosen to work in and through you today. What an honor that he would bestow to sinners like us. Would you pray with me? Triune God, we worship you today. Father, we thank you for your kindness in conquering us, in subduing us to yourself. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the victory you have won and shared with us in securing our redemption with your own blood. We thank you. Holy Spirit, we thank you for the patient and persistent way that you are working the ground of our heart to bear fruit for the kingdom. We pray to you, triune God, for the faith to better love you and to better love our neighbor. We ask you, God, be pleased to bring out of our humble lives the fruit of your spirit. Produce in us this day, this week, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and things like these. In the name of the precious Son, in Jesus' name. Do we pray? Amen.